Hello and welcome to the Bookview series. We have with us former MP, scholar, and author Varma. Welcome, sir. Has he come out with his book, The Great Hindu Civilization? So, um, so you say in the preface of the book, we are starting off with the questions straight away. The blessings of a great Hindu civilization must also be taken into account. Could you elaborate on that? I speak more piece? of the achievements, although I take on board the blemishes also. The achievements were that this is a remarkable civilization that began at the dawn of time. It is marked by continuity, antiquity, peaks of refinement, assimilation, diversity. And it has become in many ways because unlike other civilizations of its time, in the ancient past. It's not a museum relic. It's not become an antiquity. It continues to be alive, perhaps in a mutated form, and therefore it is in a sense sanatan or eternal. So this great Hindu civilization to which I pay tribute and in analyze and understand what its uh, achievements were, also like a Any other civilization was not I have referred to and tried to put them in perspective. One, of course, is the caste system and the inequity that it imposed on Hindu society by making the criteria of birth the, the a substitute for meritocracy. And it was an incorrigibly hierarchical society with a great deal of exploitation and subjugation of those at the bottom of the pyramid. There appears to be substantive evidence that in the earlier part of the Hindu civilization, they were accorded considerable respect and given a status of near equality. You must have heard of the famous ladies Gargi and Maitri. Gargi actually uh, argued in a, in a, in a, in a sabha presided over by Janak with the great sage Yagnavalkya uh, and persisted in her queries and questioning and a point of view, even though it was a bit irksome to Yagnavalkya. She, she was, it, it not only showed that women could be equal participants in meetings of this nature, but that she could hold her ground. We also had strong women, like for instance, Ropudi. And you have the example of Yagnavalkya's wife, Maitri, who were, were, were uh, strong women in their own right who could uh, interrogate their, their husbands or raise questions in the larger forum of society. Uh, we have proof also from Kautalya's Arthashastra that women were given important positions in the administration. Uh, so there is a lot of evidence to that. Uh, um, uh, to, to support this thesis. But once again, like with the caste system coming to the turn of the common era, there appears to have become uh, 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 a, a precedent, a tradition, which later uh, became very inequitable, where women were looked down upon, considered to be mere appendages of men. There's a famous line in the Manusmriti that as uh, during, if when she's married, she is an appendage of the husband. 
when she's uh, young of the father and and so on so forth and later in life of her son so women began to be seen as somewhere inferior in this social matrix uh, which uh, was a newer development but it has lasted for much too long and one of the great points i make in the great hindu civilization is that today what we need is not so much hindutva as hindu satya we need great reform we need reform of hinduism while understanding its great achievements because a lot of hindus are just not aware of it they are not aware of what their own inheritance heritage and legacies but having understood it there is also need to reform hinduism as indeed hinduism has evolved over a period of time so to 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 reform it we need to get in put start to put an end to the caste system and to gender disparity and so in that context only do i speak of the blemishes so um, so like you said many people today are not aware of their legacy uh, at the same time there's uh, this growing uh, thought in the in among people that when you appreciate appreciate your history you're often equated with hindu fundamentalism this is this is a point of view meda which i take head on because uh, there are two separate aspects to this one is that we need to fight against all forms of extremisms today in religion or otherwise and the ultra hindu right is also as i analyze in my book in the present day context largely driven by lumpen elements with very little knowledge about the great legacy of hinduism so that's a separate problem but because you are afraid that there could be a threat to secularism you don't deliberately devalue demean and and uh, uh, in a sense denigrate hindu civilization per se and i think that there are two separate things i mean people like amartya sen for instance uh, will although a great sanskritologist himself will not speak of some of the great refinements of india's uh, uh, hindu civilization especially on the in, of the ancient past lest it lead to hindu glorification so all kinds of questions are put forth to somehow devaluate so somehow underplayed and i say it's time to end the hypocrisy people will say there is no such word as hindu i counter it people will say if there is such a word there is no such thing as hindu civilization i counter it then people will say if there was a hindu civilization it was for over a millennia more buddhist than hindu i have great respect for buddhism but i counter it because buddhism was a offshoot of hinduism as was jainism then people will say hinduism itself is not a unified religion wendy doniger says it's a cross between a hedgehog and a tortoise now this kind of uninformed critique then people will say don't talk of civilizations judge everything from the prism of class were they feudal were they serfs yes we need to speak about the economic aspects of the society but let's not uh, throw the baby out with the bath water as it were so 
uh, all kinds. Then people will question the antiquity of this civilization and any attempt to use the latest scientific evidence, geographical, textual, archaeological, hydrological, satellite mapping, etc., to show the actual antiquity of this civilization based on the existence of the river Saraswati is poo-pooed, is looked down upon by people who say this is only an attempt towards Hindu glorification. But you cannot ignore the objective facts of history. That's my point. So, we should not conflate two issues. One is, we need a sane Hinduism today, a revived Hinduism. Let there be a renaissance in Hinduism, but let it not become. Uh, uh, let us not fall prey to the attempt by some to make it a copy of the Semitic faiths or a Wahhabi Hinduism or a Talibani Hinduism. This is not what we want. And we need to fight that. That's a separate matter. Also, we need to fight the tendencies towards xenophobia and chauvinism. Only right. But in order to do that, please don't gloss over the objective facts of history and give credit where it's due uh, and stop making this linkage that if we give credit where it is due, it will lead to Hindu glorification. Similarly, during the Islamic conquest, I am all for the syncretic culture that developed as a consequence of that uh, the Muslim rule in India. But let us not gloss over the facts of history by saying that there was no destruction, there was minimal destruction, there was no destruction of temples, that the, the, the invaders were not inflexible proselytizers. There was huge damage to Hindu civilization okay. of an unprecedented kind. A kind that was rarely seen in history and certainly never seen by Hindu society before. Where on the basis of religion, a great deal of wanton destruction took place. Let's record that. Let's take it in board. Then let's not excavate the past for present acrimonies. Let us accept what was, reconcile with it and move on to build in the real sense a modern plural republic tolerant to all faiths which is what our constitution guarantees us. But by trying to do that, for instance, you will make the, the entire Muslim rule Akbar as emblematic. So you will say now Akbar had the deen-e-ilahi, Akbar abolished the jizya tax, Akbar was married to a Hindu, Akbar was more tolerant, so he is emblematic of entire Muslim personal rule. I mean, most Muslim rule. But that was not the case. Even Akbar was succeeded by much more bigoted kings like Jahangir and Shah Jahan and even worse Aurangzeb. So we need to give the facts as they were, understand them, accept history and move on to the present. So um, like we were talking about how people need to accept everything and reconcile with it. So in that, what is the idea of a Hindu today? Of, of what? Of a Hindu. I mean, how would you define a Hindu? 
No, you see, Hinduism has no one text only, no one pope only, no one grand temple only, no one only prescribed ritual. So in many ways, it's a way of life. And that is how we need to be. But I often wonder, Medha, I often wonder why Hindus themselves are so incurious, bordering on indifferent indifference to the remarkable treasure house of their own heritage and legacy. Uh, it's a curious phenomenon. There is so much on offer and so little interest. Sometimes I think, I mean, people don't know what the three foundational texts of Hinduism are. The Upanishads, the Brahmasutra, the Bhagavad Gita. People don't know that there were six systems of Hindu philosophy. The Nyaya, the Vaisheshik, the Sankhyog, the Purvamansh, the Uttarvamansh. People don't know the remarkable social institutions such as the four Purusharths, the four ashrams. People don't know that India was the first country to elaborate upon the most remarkable and intricate and sensitive theory of aesthetics, which is the Rasa theory. People don't know of the remarkable bhakti movement. For 600 years, one way, we survived Muslim proselytization and antipathy towards Hinduism, that Hinduism itself democratized itself. Instead of being top-down, it became bottom-up. And the bhakti movement with its simple rituals of prayer and kirtan and chanting and the remarkable efflorescence of poetry and devotional uh, fervor that it marked across the length and breadth of this country. People don't know. So I say that a Hindu, in a sense, is right. It's a way of life because Hindus, contrary to what some of the ultra-Hindu right tries to say, we will tell you what to do, what not to do, what to eat, what not to wear, uh, how to behave and how not to behave. Hindus don't like to be told that. They're an eclectic faith. They're an eclectic faith. I mean, a faith which is founded on the Rigvedic dictum of Ekam Satya Vipraha Bahuda Vadanti. There is one truth, wise people call it by different names. A faith whose one of the great principles is Ano Bhadraha Kritavo Yantu Vishwata. Let good thoughts flow from all directions. A faith which is founded on Udar Charitanam Vasudheva Kutumbukam. For the big hearted, the entire world is a family. This is not a Talibani faith. Hindus don't like to be told what to do and what not to do by people who know the least about Hinduism themselves. But I sometimes feel that even though just by practicing Hinduism you are a Hindu, in the most perfunctory way of living Hinduism rather than there should be a little more effort on the part of Hindus to be in touch with their glorious heritage, this remarkable civilization to which they are heir. So at one point in the book, you refer to uh, A.K. Ramanujan, who said that Hindu temple is designed to represent the human body. And also you mentioned how the bubble shape of the Buddhist stupa 
was designed to convey the cosmos. So could you explain these concepts? You see, the first thing you have to understand about Hinduism and Hindu civilization, that it is based on a remarkable degree of celebration, of application of mind, of concepts, of intelligence applied to social usage, of ideation. It's a tremendously cerebral civilization and religion. There is almost nothing done in Hinduism without considerable concentration of thought behind, behind it. A temple also, which is a place of worship, Ekiramanujam compares it to a body because of the manner in which it's structured. The outer entrance into a courtyard, then a vestibule, then another mandap, finally leading to the Garbhagriha, where the idol is placed, the placement of the shikhar, which is equivalent to the head on top of the Garbhagriha. He compares it to a temple because even if you go into the manner in which a temple was built and the science then followed for its consecration. Uh, 365 bricks put in a certain way representing the seasons at the right time. The whole theory of Vastu Shastra and the many treatises we have on architecture. So it's not happenstance. It's not that you create a rubble and call it a place of worship. There's a lot of mental application that goes behind it. And it is in this context that A.K. Ramanujan, a great thinker in his own right, uh, who said that, uh, that uh, it's like a temple. A.K. Ramanujan also famously said when asked about the diversity within Hinduism, that it's like a trouser. Singular at the top, plural at the bottom. So uh, uh, that is also Hinduism. And people, I'm amazed, like Wendy Doniger, crucify Hinduism on the basis of its diversity. This, they, are, they, they are completely flummoxed by the diversity of Hinduism. At one level, Nirguna, without attributes, Brahm. At another level, Shagun, where we have thousands and thousands upon deities. To a Western mind, it's very difficult to absorb how are both possible, whereas to the Hindu mind, there is no contradiction whatsoever. If you believe in the Nirgur, which is all-pervasive, imminent, omnipotent, omniscient, it is there in you and me and in everything. You can worship a rock, a stone, a piece of a tree, a tree, a river, they're all emanations of that same Brahm. But having secured that belief, you say, let the imagination run riot in giving this great Brahm manifestation in accordance with human categories. So our gods will have four arms. You, you will see that we extravagantly humanize our gods. But in the Hindu mind, there's no contradiction because the Nirgun Sagun theory is so beautifully balanced. So these are things that are uh, we, we need to understand. 
we need to understand okay. uh, so william dalrymple is also supposedly coming out with a similar book your thoughts on that on that sir i'm friend of mine some of his viewpoints especially on the islamic context conquest i have contested in my book but he's somebody i greatly respect and he's a good friend uh, and i know one thing about him that anything he comes out with is meticulously researched and uh, and and therefore i look forward to the book but i believe it's something to do ancient india uh, and uh, in particular the export from india of india's culture to other territories abroad but i am not sure so lastly i would like to ask you you have come up with three very deep research books in quick succession so do we see something of a lighter nature well <laughs> i've written a novella recently after this book was written and while it was to be published i think it's the sheer compulsion of continuing to be absorbed in some project relating to writing so it's a novella uh, which will be much lighter reading and which will be much more interesting reading and i hope so to complete that's i i didn't mean to say your books are not interesting they're brilliant to read i mean no it's 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 in the genre of lighter reading as you put it this novella which is coming out good okay so thank you sir thank you for taking time out today for this conversation it was really very enlightening thank you for being thank with you. us today thank you